Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Jim S., David P., Jonathan K., Nick W., Craig S., Luke A., and Paul M. Joining us on the program today is Mr. Porter Stansberry. Porter is the chairman of Porter & Company Research, a new investment research group led by Porter, his team, and Porter's extensive past experience in the financial analysis, his understanding of the market, credit cycle, and economics. Porter is based in Maryland, United States. You can learn more about Porter & Co. and the work Porter is doing via their website, porterandcompanyresearch.com. Mr. Stansbury, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation, and it's pretty early in the morning where I am in Maryland, uh, so a little too early for my favorite beverage, but I like the sentiment. I get it. I'm still on coffee over here after being up for over five hours now, but it should be a good time, Porter, and I wish we could share a beverage together, an alcoholic one at that, maybe adult beverage, if you will. Exactly. Those are my favorite kind. <laughs> well, Porter, good to chat with you. And just for the audience, I used to follow Porter's work back around the 2011-2014 period on long driving commutes in Oregon. And I did so for a number of years listening not only to the Bob and Tom show, which is comedy, but also Porter and Aaron Brabham on Stansbury Radio, which was always fun. And I'm also just excited to see Porter come back and do his work in a way where he's leading things, which I think is very important. And also his work, again, for the audience, very intelligent if you're not familiar with Porter's work. But let's dive right in here, Porter, and wave the introduction formalities as we have a number of topics to, to cover here. But first, I'd like to just get your thoughts on where we are in the broad market today where we are in the credit cycle, interest rates, and where you are positioning yourself over the next couple of years or so? Well, very broadly speaking, it seems just, you know, so readily apparent that there was an enormous financial bubble that was brewed up by all the world's central banks over the last decade or maybe even a little bit longer. And it is far from certain how all that will resolve in terms of any particular market or commodity. But my position is that there is no way for the governments to afford the sovereign debt burdens that they have. So I do not expect you're going to see any kind of a deflationary crash like you did in 29 or the 1930s. I think the governments have learned that the only way out of these problems is through generating nominal GDP growth, which will mean higher and larger amounts of fiscal deficits. And that means higher interest rates and more inflation for a lot longer than anybody expects. And that's the sort of the basis of the work that we're doing. The good news, if there is any good news in any of that, is that for people who know how to hedge their savings and their wages, it's a one-way bet. You can bet that the dollar is going to go lower. You can bet that commodity prices are going to go higher. And you can bet that certain kinds of corporations are going to be highly advantaged in this kind of environment. And so that's the kind of work we're doing. We're trying to keep an eye on those growing fiscal deficits. We're trying to keep an eye on the resulting inflation. And we're trying to help our subscribers hedge their assets and their wages and what we perceive as a you know, decade plus longer inflationary cycle. Very well and very interesting, Porter, and some of us is in small niche markets in the corner of places people seem to forget about. Uh, we, we hope we're somewhat insulated, but as you know, uh, I think we're all exposed here and we need to take measures to make sure that we cover our rear ends, if you will. Porter, do you think that there's a revolving door between the regulators and banks? Do you see that this really ultimately, maybe specifically to the U.S., poses a problem to the financial markets? I don't really see that. Ironically, what I see is that there is no way for real interest rates to exist. Look right now at the at the 10-year, right? We're we're you know close to four percent. Meanwhile, inflation, you know, annually is still running at over four percent. So we still are we still live in a world of negative real interest rates. Now listen, 
That's a big improvement from negative nominal interest rates, which is where we were in 21. So there is financial sanity, which is why you've seen a lot of the froth and low quality equity and then crypto nonsense. That stuff has all gotten blown out of the water. But the financial stability of the banking system, I do not believe is in jeopardy at all, given the fact that there is enormous fiscal deficits and continuing real negative interest rates. In that environment, I don't think the banks are going to come under any real stress. Very well. Okay, this new startup company, Porter & Co. Research, uh, been around Porter, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but it going on a year or close to it. Talk about this business, the focus, and what you'd like to accomplish with it. Well, that's a great question, and I hope people out there remember my newsletters over the last 25 years. I've written, of course, a lot about a lot of big themes. One of my favorites was, you know, why peak oil was a myth and the resulting uh, oil boom that I covered from 2009 until 2016, 2017, and the Eagle Ford and the Permian. Those kinds of big ideas are what I love to do as an investor. I love, you know, having all those fundamental insights and then being able to convert those into actionable advice. That's what we do. It's just much easier now that um, I'm now 50 years old. I've been doing this for more than 25 years. I have considerable financial wherewithal now that I didn't have 25 years ago. You might remember that when I started my first research company, I had to borrow the laptop computer I started it on. So now we have a little bit more in the way of resources and experience and a global network of people who are happy to help us. And I think we're going to be able to do some really high quality work. The other real fun thing is that I don't really have to do anything in the way of pleasing my partners anymore because I don't have any. So that's a great asset. I, I, can, um, I can keep my costs low. I can keep the quality of our work very high. And I don't have to sort of mess around with a lot of the things that you have to do when you're starting out uh, and you're young and you don't have any capital. So I think people who are used to my work are just going to see it done in a more intense and concentrated way with less rigmarole. Uh, of course, the, no, no advertising. Don't have to worry about you know, pleasing my sponsors, so to speak, in terms of my publishing partners. So you're going to get more of me and in a more concentrated form. I think people will like that. And definitely it's nice to be able to cut through a lot of that red tape that you, you know, wrapped yourself in at your former post, which I want to come to that now and then get back to you with a different angle on peak oil. But your last post as founder at Stansbury Research now under the umbrella of MarketWise was quite a success and really brought you to the front of the business. Talk about that history briefly, Porter. You've repeated yourself on this on some prior programs, but your exit from that business, you know, as a founder. Yeah, I think this happens to a lot of founders. I was really good at working in, in teams of people from, say, you know, 25 to 50 people I can manage and, and, and have relationships with and enjoy working with. When I left MarketWise, we were up to about 600 employees. And that was good in terms of the revenue growth and the profits growth. And I'm very proud of what we accomplished in terms of the business there. There aren't very many businesses that can grow revenues and earnings at 30% a year for 20 years in a row. And that, those are our average performances. The entire time I was the chairman and the CEO of that business, we never had a month in the red. We treated our customers great, we made our employees very wealthy, and we made our partners extremely wealthy. So I'm proud of all those things I did. But man, working in an organization like that, I, I'm let's just put it this way, I'm not fit to work in any company that has an HR department. <laughs> I'm just, I'm way too direct with things. And um, I don't embrace any of the current ESG world. I don't care how you go to the bathroom or which bathroom you use. Just just don't talk about it at work. I don't care what you do in your bedroom. Just don't talk about it at work. I don't care at all what color your skin is or where your parents were born or anything like that. I care about making that income for our shareholders and I care about producing results for our subscribers. And anything that gets in the way of these two goals is going to have to wait outside the business, not nine to five. It bothers me that there aren't more people who embrace that corporate culture and who don't care about that because business is hard enough without focusing business resources on solving the political, emotional, <laughs> and uh, delusion, del delusional problems of your staff. You just can't have that in business. And those, of course, those views are not popular and the banks who were taking us public wanted nothing to do with any of that stuff. So I was politely shown the door and 
Kind of like Ron White. When I say politely, I mean they picked my sorry ass up and threw me out of the bar. <laughs> so uh, I retired in December of 2020 from that business. And then uh, they made me all of these promises about what would happen next in terms of uh, changing control payments and you know liquid security promises, none of which occurred. So I think, I'm not sure about this, but I suspect I'm probably the largest individual victim of fraud in the history of the financial markets because I sold a business for $3 billion and I didn't receive a single nickel. So that whole issue is going to take some time to resolve and who knows how it will be resolved. The one thing I do know is the, the only thing you won't find in a courtroom is justice. So I'm not optimistic. But anyway, so I served out my non-compete and I had I had planned to fully retire. I, I had spent 25 years or a little bit longer working very hard. And as you know, the financial markets are all consuming. You know, I'd sort of wrecked my health. I had wrecked my marriage. I was really looking forward to having a retired life. And so I bought some boats and I bought a house in Miami and I was fishing and spearfishing and enjoying time with my children and wasn't really involved in the financial markets in any way, not even as an investor, totally shut down. And then when all of the promises that the people who took over MarketWise made me, you know, turned out to be lies, I was put in a difficult position. Uh, all the, you know, most of my net worth and all of my savings sort of were tied up in things that were illiquid, not only MarketWise, which didn't have a liquid security as I was promised, but other things like real estate and other, other investments like that. So I had to go back to work. And so I, I called some old friends and we launched Porter and company in June of 22. And I'm really pleased to tell you that, you know, we haven't really spent any money at all, zero on marketing. And we're already back up to a, you know, a business that's probably going to have a first year annual run rate of between 25 and $50 million in subscription revenue. And our recommendations have been performing very well for our, our customers. And I think everyone's happy me to be back in business and uh, them for me to be writing and helping them with their investments. Well said. And I don't think you need to do the advertising bit. I think there's enough following out there and including my interest in this just because you coming back out and actually putting your hand down with the pen again is very substantial to me. Hell, I would have made sure that you were non-competed for the rest of your life, Porter, but sounds like someone didn't do their job. So good on you for coming back on this. And Trust me, there's a longer story there. They, they tried fraudulently to have me sign a 10-year non-compete and name license with no compensation. And they stuck that document in the bottom of 12 pages of routine boilerplate, told me I didn't need to read any of it, and then had me sign it at 1130 one night after two bottles of wine. Luckily... <laughs> Luckily, I didn't take them at their word and I read it and I was just, it's just outrageous behavior. You, it's just, you know, I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but one of the ways yep. that I did business with my partner for 20 years when we, when I was running what is now MarketWise was we did all of our agreements on a handshake and we wrote down what our intentions and our expectations were in an email. That was it. I was running a, you know, MarketWise was a $500 million a year revenue business, and I was running it on a handshake with Bill Bonner. You want to know why? Because we're both honorable people. If I tell you that I'm going to do something, I will do it. And every time in the business, when the circumstances would change, we would get back together and we'd say, hey, you know, we, we made these, we had these intentions, we had these expectations, and all the conditions have changed. So we want to, we want to change the agreement to reflect that. We're going to keep the, the spirit of the agreement. We're going to keep the principles. But the dynamics have changed so much that the original agreement doesn't make any sense in this context. Bill and I never had a single harsh word about any of that. And we probably changed, you know, we changed the balance of our agreement, I think, five or six times over 20 years. No hard feelings, not a problem, didn't need any lawyers. And I, I just don't know how to do business any other way. And the idea that people would buy a $3 billion business from me and try to cheat me at every single turn is just outrageous. It's just outrageous. And I can't imagine how they think they're gonna get away with it or how they think they're gonna keep that company functioning when the entire basis of the company is fraud. It's just gonna be a disaster. And I honestly, I feel sorry for the people that still work there that had to, that had to suffer under that leadership. The good news is I finally got my proxy back. <laughs> I finally, I'm in the process of throwing them all out of that company. and. I hope that I can save it before it goes to zero. But again, I'm not optimistic. Yeah, it's definitely degenerate. That's for sure, man. But uh, look, you mentioned a friend. 
I'm going to have you think about some other friends that you might want to mention by name here for our audience to follow in a moment. But I want to just ask you another question here related to this. But as you know, Porter, you've been involved with these businesses, you know, the Stansberries, the Agoras of the world market wise now, of course. These businesses affected a number of subsidiaries and spinoff groups that were still ultimately connected with the parent groups. And I can think of a number of other names. And I suspect folks would wonder here, is Porter & Co. another spinoff from the same group or is it truly an independent? Oh, no, this is Porter & Company is my business. I, I run it in my backyard in a barn that I built. And um, we have right now about 20 employees. I'd say that at least half the employees I've had a friendship or a professional relationship with for more than a decade. So these are this is me and my crew. And every single person that we have hired was someone that market-wise either fired or ran off in some way, shape, or form. So I didn't recruit anyone from uh, the public company or from Agora. Um, these are all people who, who see the world the way that I do and, and would rather work with me than with people who they don't respect and uh, can't trust. Give us a flavor of people that you still keep in touch with. I mean, you mentioned Bill. Um, maybe there's some others out there, uh, Sugar Rude, Ferris, et cetera, your former business and, and some of your friends that you've made along the way. But is there anybody there that you want to mention that the audience should really keep on their radar? Oh man, there's so many, there are so many bright people at MarketWise still. Um, I am just blown away with the quality of work that David Lashmet does there. It's unbelievable. One out of every three of his stock picks more than doubles. And he's in biotech, which is a very tough space to get right. Uh, Brian Beach, the work that he does on, on the insurance side of things for the subscribers uh, at, at Stansbury's Investment Advisory is phenomenal. I mean, his track record is second to none. It's Buffett-esque or even better. Likewise, Mike DiBiaz there at Credit Opportunities. He's an inspiration for us. We're just starting our own distressed debt product at Porter & Company. And all the stuff that I built with those guys over the years, the incredible stuff. If you've ever seen the oil value monitor, if you've ever seen the capital efficiency stuff, if you've ever seen our work on what we call magic stocks, there's so much good information there. And the people who run those research uh, products are first-class people in every way. So please don't hear my, you know, my uh, disdain for the management of MarketWise to uh, filter into the product level because they're different people and and certainly the people who run my products over there are fantastically ethical, wonderful, brilliant human beings who deserve, um, frankly, who deserve your respect in your business. What we're going to do at Porter and Company is, you know, in the same vein, it's in the same spirit, but um, I'm just, I don't need to build another $3 billion business. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a team of, you know, 60 analysts. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with a team of 20 to 25 people. And we're going to cover the things that we know how to do very well and not much else. So my, the first outside analyst I brought in to Porter and Company is a guy named Marty Fritzen. And for those of you who don't know, I would recommend you Google him because there isn't anyone in the history of capitalism that knows more about distressed debt investing than Marty Fritzen. He ran distressed debt for Solomon Brothers. He ran distressed debt for Merrill. He ran distressed debt for Morgan Stanley. And he's in his 70s now, and he's he's retired from you know fiduciary obligations, but 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 knows every single person in the market, knows all the debentures, has seen every angle, knows exactly how to play the cycle, and he's writing a newsletter for us at, at Porter and Company called Distressed, and it's it's going to be the very best newsletter that's ever existed, the you know the returns that we have earned previously at things like credit opportunities. They're about 30% a year average annualized return with about an 85% win rate. It's re, if you know what you're doing when distressed about investing, it's, it's as good as it gets. It's as good as great arbitrage. It's at the very high end of financial certainty and, and annualized returns. And I'm so proud that Marty Fritzen wanted to work with me. And I think that's a testament to what I've tried to do in my career, which is surround myself with the very best people and only publish really good products. Looking forward to seeing some of that work and definitely with respect to scale, there's a certain point where scale is enough. And, you know, if you can keep very good margins and satisfy subscribers, uh, clients, and of course, shareholders and do so under a small umbrella, that's very efficient. I think that's so much better and less stressful, to be honest. So make it easy, make it simple and cut through the BS. As you know, Porter, it's gotten worse, terribly worse. I think the primary difference between what I'm doing now and what I did before is that what I did before was publishing, right? 
we wanted to have as many paying subscribers as possible. We wanted to have a big publishing company. And when you're in publishing, you, you are always driven towards the lowest common denominator. And so we had products that we would sell for $49, right? We had products we would sell for $99. We're, we're trying to reach out to the retired school teacher who's got $50,000 in Ameritrade. And we have to serve them at that level. We have to write stuff that's very, very easy to read. In, in fact, we had this, uh, this flesh Kincaid scale, if, you, if you've ever seen that before, that, that would give you um, a, a, like, um, a, a school grade target to keep your writing simple. And we tried to write everything at the fifth grade level. That was our goal as publishers, to have a lot of subscribers and to make our work extremely approachable so we could sell 100,000 new subscribers a year. That was our goal. I, don't, I just don't want to do that anymore. I'm not in the publishing business anymore. I'm in the financial research business only now. And so our lowest cost product is going to be $1,500 a year. And we don't have to write at the fifth grade level anymore. Like I can, I can write things that I'm interested in that I want to read. And this, all of our products are geared towards financial professionals. Does that mean that you can't use our products if you are a retired school teacher? No, of course you can. Anyone who wants can subscribe. But are you going to pay $1,500 a year for research if you've only got a $50,000 portfolio? I wouldn't recommend it. So I just, I'm just i at a different phase of my life, and I, have a, and, I, and I just want to do work that I'm personally interested in. That's all I want to do anymore. And I hope that makes sense to people who have, you know, have built a business in their lives. I often talked about our favorite customer when I was at Stansbury Research, and our favorite customer was the guy who deals in tires in Augusta, Georgia. And I loved working for him and dealing with him because he knew everything about the tire business, and he knew everything about his customers, but he didn't know anything about Wall Street, and he didn't trust anybody from New York wisely. And so he would come to us, and he would rely on us because he could tell that we were honest people because the way we did business the same way that he did business he could relate to us that's exactly the guy i'm hoping to serve at porter company i want to serve independent successful business owners who may not know much about finance but know a lot about trust and character and quality and they're going to find that in my work at porter and company in spades Excellent. I agree with that, Porter, and the size, you know, keeping the size reasonable. I prefer, as we've changed over the years as well, a small, tight group of people, higher price. It's much easier, especially in the markets we work with. We don't want size um, because we have a liquidity problem, and so we want uh, a small group. I want to talk a little bit about your research recently that's come out. It is heavily focused on the energy trade in a number of segments, including natural gas, as well as things like nuclear energy, which, um, as you know, is turning quite a corner. Talk about your view of energy and where the most potential in this energy trade lies. Oh, man, that is such a great question. Thanks for bringing that up. I am convinced that Energy is the most important sector in the world economy. It ultimately is what drives all of the creation of wealth around the world. And one of my favorite things to talk about is the long-term transformation of different forms of energy, always towards more dense forms and more reliable forms. So if you go back to the 1600s in England, there was a switch made between timber and coal. And it set in motion the entire Industrial Revolution and led the population of London from a maximum of around a half a million people historically to, to 6 million people by 1900. So the population of London had been capped at about a half a million people before coal. And it was all related to energy. And as coal was much more dense, has about 10 times as, as much energy as wood does per mass, per, per weight, more dense form of energy, more reliable forms of energy led to more people. More people leads to more wealth. And so London went from a half a million people to six million people by 1900. And yes, there were some downsides to that, of course. The, the, chim the poor chimney sweeps all got cancer in their scrotums, which is among the most devastating outcomes. But also, you, you, you'll remember from the 1950s, there were you know bad coal fogs where, where thousands of people would die in London just because the air quality was so bad. So yes, of course, there needs to be technological improvement. We need to deal with pollution. All those things are true. But the solution is not, is not forms of en energy that are less dense and less reliable. 
And if we try to put the entire world on solar panels and windmills, billions of people will starve because there will not be nearly enough energy to support life on Earth as we know it. And that's the simple fact. So if you look at the historical trend in energy and you look at how important energy is to more people and more wealth, you can see that the demands that we abandon carbon forms of energy by 2030 or by 2050 is suicide for, for any society. And that's why people like China keep building more coal-fired power plants because it is a very reliable, very dense form of energy. So what's going to happen? Well, the people like Germany who abandon nuclear power and coal, they're, 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 they're subjecting their societies to suicide and they're going to fail. And hopefully it won't take many of those examples before people stop demanding that around the world. If pollution is a problem, then you develop technologies to solve it, whether that's carbon capture or putting scrubbers on coal-fired power plants. Those are all technologically possible. What isn't technologically possible is building enough battery packs to make solar work around the world. That's never going to happen. There isn't enough lithium. There isn't enough nickel. There isn't enough copper. It's lunacy. Same thing with windmills. It can't be done. The best possible solution, as I see it, is migrating to cleaner forms of carbon energy, whether that's clean coal or natural gas, any of those solutions will work. And ultimately, the power source 50 years from now has got to be nuclear in one form or another. That's just very obvious. It's very obvious that energy has to move towards denser and more reliable forms for there to be more wealth and more health in the world. Well said. <laughs> Luckily, I still live in a country that still embraces diesel. The clown show with respect to energy, uh, namely in the States, and even the attacks on hydro, by the way, this has been ongoing for decades. Hydro removal in Western United States has been absolutely a joke. Absolutely agreed with you on this, that energy, natural resources is going to be a huge deal going forward here. Just a little bit more on energy, and I want to bring this up to you to get your thoughts on this. And Maybe you haven't dug in yet. Maybe you have to some degree, so you're going to have an opinion on this, Porter, because you've got some background here. But some of your recent work highlights a services company in the nuclear industry. I want to drill down a bit more specifically to the uranium mining segment of this industry. You obviously remember USEC, now known as Centris Energy, which operates in the fuel cycle and was a big player in the megatons to megawatts program that is no longer with us. But what are your thoughts on the mining side of this trade in terms of energy and the focus towards nuclear? And if you think the best way to take advantage of the return of nuclear energy to the markets is via the broken uranium segment in lieu of, say, a larger tens of billions of dollars market cap utilities and nuclear service energy providers, manufacturers. What's your thoughts on the uranium sector and maybe that kind of smaller end, smaller segment of the trade? That's a question that I'm really not prepared to answer very intelligently. I just don't know enough about those those businesses to, to really speak to that. Um, as you may have seen from my newsletter, I have recommended uh, one uh, services provider in the space, and I did so because their technology is very interesting in terms of small-scale nuclear power, and they certainly have the most experience of any company in the world in dealing with highly portable, small-scale nuclear, which it just seems clear to me. If you can put a nuclear power reactor on a boat and send that boat to war, and you've never had a serious accident on any of those reactors, it's pretty good testament to somebody's engineering, and that's this company's. So if you're going to build small-scale nuclear, where you have you know nuclear plants for, for individual cities or even potentially individual neighborhoods, I think that they're the, probably going to be the technological and service leaders. And I think that that's going to be a growth industry for a long time. My view there is based on their historic performance and then the runway they have for further growth. I just don't know anything about uranium mining. I've never been to a uranium mine. I don't really know much at all about the fuel providers. I famously recommended USEC many years ago, and that recommendation did well. But at the time, it was trading for half of book value and paying an 8% dividend. It, it wasn't really a bet on uranium, per se. It was just a, a very cheap business that I thought had a monopoly and would do well, which it did. So 
apology for not, not having a thorough enough answer there, but I am bullish on nuclear generally, but I just don't like to speak about things that I haven't researched myself. That's good, Porter. And just the, if you need to take a look at Centris now, just that fuel cycle services play um, has done well. If you look over the last couple of years, quite well, actually, that segment is a little bit difficult to look at in terms of looking for an investment that has some size to it. Whereas the one that you've looked at, again, um, I agree with your position on this company, solid, a very intelligent pick, has some good liquidity to it, has a little more size to it for a big audience you know, the new scales of the world, question mark. You look at the GE Hitachi joint venture on SMRs. You look at the Rolls-Royce stepping into the market. But these are much larger companies. This one that you picked out, I think, was a pretty intelligent move. And it has a huge track record attached to it. Of course, as you know, our site is predominantly focused right into the juniors and the uranium sector and the actual miners that bring out uranium concentrate, you know, cake in a can off to the conversion facility. Let's leave that one, and I'd like to move on to a different topic here, Porter, completely different. I'd like you to cover off the Michael Bloomberg and Larry Fink. Uh, these guys are the target subjects of your latest presentation regarding the influence of these individuals on the direction of policies within the United States as well as other places around the world who still seem to take influence from the United States. Talk about your thesis on this, and these guys obviously must not like you very much. <laughs> Well, the, my documentary, if people are interested in it, they can, they can view it at portersdocumentary.com, portersdocumentary.com. And uh, my thesis is that these ideas that are dominating corporate America had to come from somewhere. Why is it that all of a sudden every company out there has an ESG score? Why? How did that happen? And why is it that everybody believes in not just, you know, decades-long climate change, climate's always been changing, but they believe in climate alarmism. They believe, as some AOC, some idiot politician said, that the world's going to end in 12 years if we don't stop using carbon power. These, these ideas are would be laughable, except for they've been so widely embraced by the mainstream media and by our political elites and even by our corporate elites. Why is Walt Disney World advocating for child sex indoctrination at public schools and kids under the under third grade? How did that happen? What, what in the earth is going on? And so I tried to figure it out. And all roads led back to two people, both in New York, both very powerful. One guy, Larry Fink, you've probably never heard of. He runs this firm called BlackRock. And the thing that's so extraordinary to me about BlackRock is that it holds assets that are equal to more or less half of U.S. GDP. What? <laughs> How did one firm in New York get so much capital under its control? If you look at any, if you look at any S&P 500 company, the chances are that BlackRock is the largest owner. How did that happen? Well, what's so interesting is that BlackRock was a big but not a huge business until 2010. And when the mortgage crisis hit, the financial crisis hit, and the Fed started printing money, where did all the money end up? The answer is at BlackRock. They went from a trillion dollars under management to over $10 trillion under management in 10 years during the uh, Fed uh, liquidity explosion. And Larry Fink, as a result, ended up becoming the most important person in all of capitalism. He he holds the votes on every important board in the world. And so the, the entire reason why Walt Disney made that terrible decision to get involved in Florida state politics, which by the way, resulted in the loss of their self-governing status in the state, which is worth probably $50 million a year to them. That all came because of Larry Fink and his demands that uh, Disney be responsive to the radical uh, transgender gay agenda of, of a small segment of their employees. Terrible idea. On terms of Bloomberg, I'm sure you have heard of him. His, his terminals are ubiquitous in finance. He's been around since the 1980s. He built a fantastic informatics uh, terminal business where you could get bond prices was the most important thing. And he's integral to all the plumbing of Wall Street. But what most people don't know is that about the same time that Larry Fink started expanding because of the huge liquidity Fed pump, Bloomberg 
stopped being mayor of New York City and started investing billions and billions of dollars a year building a quote unquote news organization around the world. He hired like something like 2,500 people and built and bought um, the defunct Business Week magazine and opened up all of these news offices all around the world with the explicit goal of becoming the most influential news organization in the world. And who does he influence? He influences politicians and he influences business leaders. And his agenda is completely to destroy the petroleum industry. Now, the question is, why? Why is he doing this? Why is he trying to, for example, to stop the, the construction of 120 petrochemical plants along the Mississippi River Valley? Why? If he does that, he's going to make fertilizer more expensive. He's going to make food more expensive. Why does he want to get rid of power? Why does he want to get rid of coal? Why does he want to get rid of natural gas? If he does that, electrical prices are going to go to the roof. Ask Germany. Why does he want to do that? Well, when I started reading about what he's doing, it all comes down to a fear, explicit fear of overpopulation. What Bloomberg thinks is if you get rid of energy, you're going to get rid of a lot of people. And that's what he's actually after. And that is really spooky and really dark. And I probably wouldn't believe it unless I had read a whole bunch of things that he and his people said and wrote uh, over the years about overcrowding in New York City. And it's, it's a really frightening agenda. And I don't, I don't, there's no really polite way of saying it. Um, but yeah, I think that Michael Bloomberg wants to see vastly higher energy prices because he wants vastly less people. <laughs> it's, I don't know if you've seen the movie, don't look up at the end of that movie where they get off on that other planet and they all get destroyed by the animals there. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that. It's geared a little bit differently, but it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, but just the peak oil piece of it, the regulatory environment not able to get permits, pipelines getting shut down. We, we've seen odd odd fires, which there's such a large history of fires, uh, that's a history in itself of you know arson and so forth. That whole thinking and that whole push leads me back to kind of peak oil from a different avenue. Can't get permits to do anything, can't drill offshore, can't do this, can't do that, everywhere it's happening. We're seeing this in mining, getting a new copper mine online, anything like this, very difficult now in most jurisdictions. That brings me back to, well, you know, all the push on ESG and let's kick ExxonMobil out and let's pick on the oil companies. Well, the response is, is higher price. That's what's going to happen. Truly, what a clown show. I want to bring this back to just what you already touched on briefly, because I want you to expand just slightly on this, Porter. The environment and climate is the new means to fascism. What do you think? Uh, I, I think they're anti-human. I think they're exactly, they're, they're not just fascists, they're Nazis. You're not even allowed to say any of these words anymore. It's historical fact, right? The Nazis believed that the Jews were responsible for Germany's problems and they sought to eradicate them. It's a complete lunacy of an idea, right? Well, the same thing is true with environmentalists. The environmentalists believe that carbon is the responsible for all the world's problems and they're trying to eliminate it. But the only way to eliminate carbon is to eliminate people. Carbon is in every living thing. It's, it's, it is, and it is a, ideology of mentally ill people and they are very dangerous and they need to be stopped and they're going to be stopped one way or the other the question is how many people are going to die first yeah and how much pain and blood sweat and tears you got to go through on this other topic this was one that you already touched on and of course i wanted to ask you about this because i know you got a nice flavor to this but CSR, corporate social responsibility, used to be something that was practiced normally and has been practiced by good companies, good stewardship companies for many, many decades. Now this is rebranded to ESG. And this ESG push is really, in my view, um, while I agree with the basic fundamentals of this and companies have already been doing this, good companies, good people have already been doing this for a long time. They don't need to be reminded. But the weaponization of ESG now your thoughts on that, and let me copy this also with management teams and boards, Porter, that are based on expertise and talent over those that are based on, well, they say diversity, but it really cooks down to equality. Which one do you prefer? Oh, come on. Yeah, it's all madness. You know, if you if you have a society that's run on quote unquote equity, you, you've got communism. You've got, you're got, you're giving people things you know, that they, they don't qualify for, that they don't deserve. 
And it's really scary watching that happen at the board level, but also at the education level. We're not going to want to ride in airplanes or have surgeries from pilots and doctors who were selected for elite education because of their skin color or their background or the language they speak. We want those positions to be filled by people who are talented and driven and competitive so that we get the best results from our surgeries and from our airline pilots. And, it, you know, you think you think a future of the, a single airplane is important. It, it is to the people on it. But the future of something like the Coca-Cola company or Walt Disney World or ExxonMobil, the future of those assets is important to the whole entire country. How much further would the United States be today as a business if General Electric wasn't run by a bunch of crooks for 25 years? Where would it be in terms of cars if General Motors wasn't led by a union? These are really important questions, and they're going to have real-world consequences on our standard of living. These aren't just, this isn't just an academic discussion or an ideological discussion. And this is what I was saying earlier about the way I saw my company being transformed. You can't, by the way, the new CEO at MarketWise is a woman named Amber Mason. And she was a protege of mine. And I think she's one of the smartest, toughest executives I've ever been around. Amber does not give a flying, you know what, about being a woman. She would come, she would come out to our, our meetings and she would beat all the boys at poker and she would drink them all under the table. She was a, a fighter and she's tough. She never asked for any quarter and she never gave any. Consider someone of that personality, you know, to the, to whoever, whoever is in the new director of diversity at the, you, you know, the, your favorite corporation of choice. The, these people, they, they wouldn't qualify for any job and any field if they hadn't made up a whole bunch of nonsense and alleged a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't exist. I got canceled years ago from being on a podcast saying that I didn't believe in structural racism. Why didn't I believe in structural racism? Because I'd never met a racist. I grew up at an integrated high school. I had friends of every single ethnic variety. Nobody gave a hoot about it until about 10 years ago when it became a thing. Why did it become a thing? Well, it's serving someone's interests and it's not the public's. <laughs> Degenerate. And I, and I got to come back to this and I don't follow it because, you know, you and I have different eye color. We have different hair color. We, we're, we're tall, we're short, we're skinny, we're fat. Um, we, we're all so different, so different. So how fundamentally we're actually pretty dirty creatures. Nothing's going to change about that. Yeah, you can put on some lipstick and perfume. Sure. Why not? Uh, make yourself look good. Dress nicely. There's differences. I struggle to just see how can you ever drive a quality out of that, which is, I think, just the silliest thing to try to do. But let me come back to this because well, you can either have a quality or you can have freedom, but you can't have both because God didn't make none of us the same. Correct. And let me bring it back to just overall abundance. Let's use the United States as a great example here. Very wealthy country for a long time post-World War II and even building up to that world reserve currency. We've had generations of abundance. Does abundance lead to this type of stuff that we're seeing today in terms of the degradation of society and economic thinking and everything else? Uh, motivation, capitalism, talent. Is it being degraded because of that abundance border? Well, sure. That, that happens all the time, right? You're, we're living off the abundance of the last, whatever, 60 years. Mostly we're all living off of innovations to power and electricity and information technology. But the things that enabled the, the creation of those things was freedom, rule of law, mutual respect. Why did all the German scientists who built our nuclear industry come here? <laughs> right? Well, because we, they, they, were, they could be free here. Their, their lives and their property would be safe here. They weren't going to be thrown into an oven. And why did, you know, think of all the great entrepreneurs in the semiconductor space that were Hungarian. Think of, you know, we can go through every industry like this, right? We're a nation of immigrants. And instead of believing in a nation as a tribe, we believed in an idea. We, we have, and we are, we are, uh, our tribe is an idea. It's not a race. It's not an extended family. You're not Cheyenne. I'm not Shawnee. You know, my descendants were Dutch and Irish and German. Yours are what they are. Other peoples could be Somalian, could be Pakistani. It doesn't matter. You came to America, or your forefathers did, because they wanted to be free. They wanted to be free from 
racism. They wanted to be free from tribalism. They wanted to be free from uh, government exploitation. They wanted to be free to practice their religion. They wanted to be they wanted to be safe. They wanted to have opportunities. And all of that stuff was about an ambition for a better life, a better life for them, a better life for their children. Nobody came here seeking equity, not a single fucking person. And if we lose that, then we have already lost America and we're all wasting our time. Well said. So Porter, I've got a few more questions here and I appreciate you taking a little bit of extra time here with us and hopefully it's uh, been fun so far. So Porter, you still find your home base not far from the epicenter of hot air policy, red tape being the DC area and surrounding regions. Um, of course, you know, you spend your time in some other places like Florida. You're quite critical of politics and for good reason. Do you still see that the US is the ideal place to be all in or do you hold more of a global view now mixed portfolio of living places internationalization tax home diversity multiple flag staking as your approach what do you think all this stuff is too complicated for me i i do live in florida and i love that that governor DeSantis said that florida is where woke goes to die <laughs> i thought that was brilliant but I have I have two homes I have two homes because I grew up in Florida and I have a lot of old friends in the in the greater South Florida Miami area and I love fishing and, and diving, uh, free diving. And then I have a farm outside of Baltimore where I raise my my sons. So I, I split time for personal reasons, not for financial reasons. And I know that there are a whole lot of people that make good arguments, both moral and economic, around doing whatever you can to avoid taxes and all that stuff. But in my mind, this is just my personal opinion, it's it's just a form of vanity or it's a form of mental illness. I, I can't fight the tax man. He's got all the guns in the world. And uh, it's just a fact of life. I can vote against it, but as long as there's progressive taxation, I'm never gonna win those votes. You know, my solution would be give everybody as many votes as they paid in their last, you know, 1040. And you'd see the country transform. That's how we that's how we manage our corporations. That's how we should manage our government. You don't pay taxes, you don't get a vote. It's that simple. Right? We're all in this, we're all I thought we we're all in this together. Well, you're not even contributing. It doesn't seem like you're in it for me. And of course, you know, I'm in the very highest tax bracket, which is something I'm proud of. I probably paid, I'm making a number up, but I'm I'm sure I've paid more than a hundred million dollars in taxes in my life, which is way more than I've ever spent on myself or my family. To me, that's just absurd. That shouldn't ever happen in any country. It's nonsensical. So my, my solution would be get, give me as many votes as I pay in taxes and or cap my taxes at a certain level. You tell me that there's really a reason why an, an American should have to pay more than a million dollars a year in taxes. I don't believe it. He's never going to get a million dollars in services every year. No way. And that million dollars is going to cover a lot of people who aren't contributing. Of course, none of these ideas are ever going to be implemented and they're never going to be enacted upon. So what should I do about it? Should I move? Where am I going to move? There is no place that's going to treat me fairly as a taxpayer. Maybe Monaco, maybe Switzerland. But to do that, I've got to get about my U.S. citizenship. Well, I can't do that. All my friends and my family are here, and I won't be able to allow them to come back. So um, do I? Do I live in a gulag? Is this is this is this the equivalent of modern Russia? Yeah, it is. But what can I do about it? Nothing. So one of my favorite sayings is, "If there's no solution, there's no problem." There is nothing I can do about it, so I don't worry about it. I hire a good lawyer, I hire good accountants, and I pay what they tell me to pay. That's my solution, because there isn't a solution that works. No, I think that is the solution in itself. That's the best you can do, right? And contributing, contributing to what? Stupidity. Uh, it's certainly in this government, but uh, you know that's a topic for another yeah, conversation. I, I, yes, I am morally repulsed by the things that my government <laughs> spends my taxes on. I am. And, but I'm yes. not I'm not paying those taxes by choice. So for me, it's not a moral issue. It's it's you know, it's a survival issue. I don't want to go to jail. I know I know a lot of people well who have come up with really interesting strategies, but the only way to do it legally is to give up your US citizenship. And I, I can't do that. My parents live here, my children live here, my friends live here. I, I this is this is my home. I'm not right. gonna I'm not gonna put myself in a sex self exile over money that I don't need and will probably never spend. It's just not worth it. No, there's some good points there that you make, definitely, and a fine line to walk there, for sure. Just a question that came in from the audience here, Porter. You used to talk about owning gold, and you used to talk about that quite a bit at your former post. 
and also there's been discussion of Bitcoin um, and these things as well. What do you think? Is gold still part of your personal asset allocation? Is Bitcoin important to you? Uh, talk about that for a moment. Sure. Uh, I have been buying $10,000 worth of Bitcoin um, since last year when prices got below. I think I started buying when prices dipped below 18000 I can't remember exactly. But I've been buying $10,000 a day of Bitcoin for some time. I don't know exactly when I'll stop. I don't, I don't have any kind of real set strategy for it. It just seemed to me that it had bottomed. And I, I do believe that Bitcoin is a new foundational technology for the exchange of value among all humans. And as a result, I think it has a lot of value. How do I put a price on it? Well, you can. there's all kinds of ways to do this. And I know some people who are really good at it. You find the cheapest sources of power, you find the computer required to mine, you know what the hash rate is in terms of how much coin that's going to produce, and you have an idea of what Bitcoin's intrinsic value is. I, I haven't, honestly, I haven't done all those calculations. I just, it just seemed like to me that I had a bottom, so I started buying it. And the people I know that do those kind of calculations have assured me that it is cheap. So I'm buying it. As far as gold goes, I haven't bought any gold in a while, but I, did, I have bought a lot of gold in my life and I've never sold any of it. So I, I think that they, they're they both really good stores of value. They both have a, a unique role to play in humanity. I think that gold is more of a, a chaos hedge. And I think that Bitcoin is more of a really important financial infrastructure. And I think both will probably do very well, especially since we have a bankrupt country <laughs> that continues to print money. <laughs> That seems pretty obvious to me. Appreciate you clarifying that. And I think both have their uses. Price is a function of this. Obviously, you probably weren't buying when it was at its peak and you're picking it up here at a substantial discount. So there's a bit of... Uh, I, I'm happy to tell you, I bought I bought my first Bitcoin back when it was around five or $7,000 a token. I can't remember exactly when it was, but I know it was before my divorce because I got to buy it twice. <laughs> and... Uh, and then I've been buying very, I didn't buy for a very long time and then have been buying it again more recently. Yeah. I've always struggled a bit myself, Porter, with just the whole thing that this will never be split or duplicated or diluted. Um, I always struggle with that, anything that has that attached to it, because it's it's always a tough one for me when, whether you're looking at US dollar, gold, whatever, there's, there's still ounces that can be mined. Appreciate you covering that off there. I'll tell you what, Porter, we've been on here for quite a while here, and I want to be respectful of your time. Let's leave the conversation there, and, and hopefully for another time to continue. It has been a pleasure. And just a small plug for your research group and work, why should folks in the audience consider the work at Porter & Co. for a portion of their investment or all of their investment research? What do you say? Well, look, I've been in business for more than 25 years. I have a great uh, published track record. I'm able to hire the very best analysts because I have a significant amount of wealth myself. And, you know, uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, I think I, I, I think I'm a really curious person and I try to get to the bottom empirically. I uh, don't write about something that I don't know anything about. And if you're not happy, I'll always, I'm always happy to give your money back and part as friends. Seems reasonable. Absolutely. And Porter, any offers for them, the audience, and the best way for people to reach Porter & Co.? Ironically, I'm a terrible salesperson. <laughs> my, my, uh, my only pitch is uh, my staff told me to send you guys to portersdocumentary.com. You can watch our presentation there and judge for yourself. Porter, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Take care. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.